Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. But to the show today, and I've been very excited for this one, he's a friend, a marketing leader, and in a way created much of what we know as customer success today. So without further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome back Anthony Canada back to the hot seat today. Anthony is the CMO of Front, the startup that provides your team with better email so they can treat every customer like your only customer. To date, Front have raised over $138 million from some leading names, including Sequoia, Eric Yuan at Zoom, Ryan and Jared Smith at Qualtrics, Michael Cannon Brooks and Jay Simmons at Atlassian, and Frederick Karras at Okta, to name a few. As for Anthony, prior to Front, Anthony was the founding CMO at Gainsight, where he and his team are credited with creating the customer success category. At Gainsight, Anthony and the team developed a new playbook for B2B marketing that fueled the company's growth from naught to over $100 million of ARR. And if that was not enough, Anthony's also the author of Category Creation, How to Build a Brand That Customers, Employees and Investors Will Love. The book debuted as the number one new release on Amazon and is a must-read in my eyes. But before we move into the show today, I want to tell you a story that I'm sure most of you are well too well aware of. You've spent the last two weeks working on that big proposal. 14 days and 44 cups of coffee later, you're finally finished. The proposal's due by the end of the day, and it's seven minutes to midnight. Here's the problem. When you go to submit it, you find out that your corporate password just expired, you're locked out of your account, the IT team is fast asleep, and the clock is ticking. MoveWorks takes the suspense right out of this story. MoveWorks is an AI platform that lives on messaging tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams. You chat with their AI to unlock your account, to get access to software, to find troubleshooting answers, and more, wherever you are and whenever you need help. MoveWorks understands your request no matter how you phrase it, then autonomously resolves the issue in seconds. That proposal submitted within six minutes to spare. Check out MoveWorks.com to see how AI delivers instant IT support to employees anywhere and anytime. And speaking of seamless work there with MoveWorks, you have to check out Cordoba, the leading AI writing assistant built specifically for business needs in mind. These days, literally everyone within a company writes content, and because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice, whenever and wherever they are writing content. For SaaS to listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year of their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash sasta. And finally, we spend so much time lead sourcing, but fundamentally, the quantity of leads does not matter unless you can convert them. And one of the best ways to do that is to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where reviews.io come in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but it is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements and Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax, to name a few. As a special offer, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code HARRY, that's H-A-R-R-Y. But you've heard quite enough from me, so now I'm very excited to hand over to Anthony Canada, CMO at Front. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Anthony, I have to say, it's such a joy to have you back on the show. Thrilled to see about your recent move to front and such exciting times ahead there. So thank you so much for rejoining my very dulcet British tones, Anthony. <laughs> Thanks for having me back here. Not at all, but I do want to start with some context. And maybe for those that missed our first episode, tell me, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and come to be the rock star of marketing that you are today at front? <laughs> 
Oh gosh, you're too kind. Well, you know, growing up, I had no idea that I would find myself in marketing. But looking back now, I think there were actually some signals that might have been hiding in plain sight. My job in college was to produce concerts on campus, which got me really interested in events. I was actually part of a fraternity in which I was the one coming up with like the witty t-shirt ideas and working on our website. But my first real job out of college was as a technical recruiter. Basically, I was recruiting engineers for Bay Area-based startups. And the problem with it was that the year was 2008. And it was a really tough time for hiring, but an even worse time for recruiters. So the company you know, ultimately met its fate. But I was successful in placing one engineer with a small file sharing company in Palo Alto called Box. So I reached out to the hiring manager. I asked them for a shot on their sales floor. And eventually, they offered me a role as an SDR. And I became the 37th employee at Box. And so that's what really started, I think, my journey overall in SaaS. At Box, that's where I fell in love with like startup life in general. And I, for the next few years, kind of bounced around from sales roles to business development roles to product roles, effectively everything but marketing until I landed at Gainsight. I was the first marketing hire at Gainsight, I think the 19th employee. And it's there that I really cut my teeth in marketing and mostly because I had to. We were about to create this new category, this movement in customer success. And there really wasn't a ton of best practices on how to do that. And so my team and I spent six and a half years really writing our own playbook. And then we took the company from about 100K or so of ARR to just about 100 million of ARR before I moved on in June of this past year. So now I'm at Front, super excited to partner with Matilde and the team and really take on a problem of really massive scale. I mean, you guys did such amazing work in terms of creating that playbook at Gainsight. So totally credit to you for that. But I I do want to discuss, because you mentioned there moving from Gainsight, obviously, to Front. And then Gainsight, you fundamentally created the market of customer success in many ways. And today with Front, it's different in the way that it's much more of a case of kind of capturing Mm -hmm. a much larger existing market, being email and the future of work. Big shift. So how does your marketing playbook and tactics really change when making this transition? Yeah. What, you know, what's interesting is that the companies do represent two completely different go-to-markets. At Gainsight, we were hyper-focused from a TAM perspective on customer success and product leaders. And we spent years working hard to really try to expand that TAM, which now it actually continually will show up in LinkedIn's emerging jobs report as one of the fastest growing professions in the world. So we know some of that effort is starting to pay off. We took a lot of pride in really kind of championing the role. And in doing so, we ended up fueling our growth by selling into that community that we were kind of fostering. Front, on the other hand, represents an existing massive TAM. Literally over a billion knowledge workers in the world use email at work. I think it's hard to identify a bigger TAM in enterprise software. So our challenge on the marketing side is effectively how do you take an otherwise horizontal TAM and deploy the right messaging, the right campaigns to intentionally capture segments of that market at a time. And a big learning for me, now I'm only four months into the job, is honestly how incredible the front product is and the value that customers are already getting from it. And so my sense is our challenge is effectively building that awareness engine. So I don't think we're product constrained. I don't think we're market constrained, surely. And thankfully, I think we were able to do that really well at Gainsight. So I'm bullish on the future of the business. So do you think, sorry, off schedule, but I'm intrigued, given kind of the horizontal play that you have with Front being kind of available to so many different types of knowledge workers, do you think about segmentation within the marketing team and going vertical by vertical? How do you approach that? Because you can't literally market to everyone from yeah. you know financial services to shipping brokers. So how do you think about marketing vertically and, and what the right play is there? Totally. So I view that as a function of our product marketing effort. And so we have a person on our team, we're still small growing, but one person who's dedicated basically industries and segments marketing. And so his focus is actually, well, I think we'll cover some of this stuff is like, what are the verticals that have high fit today that are dealing with the complexity of customer communication 
experience. And for them, the difference between actually getting back to the customer quickly with the right context is the difference between like success and failure. And so that person is effectively responsible for owning the business plan for each of the verticals and then aligning with the different go-to-market partners, be it the SDR organization, the sales organization, the web team, whatever it is to ensure that we're building digital and experiential kind of components that are able to drive demand within those independent verticals. So for sure, I think that's an incremental kind of strategy for us to grow. We need some more of the flywheel type stuff to get it going at scale. But I think you kind of need both when you're attacking a market just this wide. You said about the flywheel stuff there. And you know, front is a, a very different play to gain side in, in many other ways. You know, much larger ACVs, generally speaking, at gain side. Also means you had a lot more kind of freedom when it comes to really budgeting around things like account-based marketing specifically. I'm interested, how do you think about an approach ABM today with front, given the kind of higher velocity but smaller ACV model? So we do have at front a self-serve business that, you know, to your point, drives a high volume of kind of lower ACV deals. But actually, we, we do have several deals that are in the kind of mid to high six-figure ACV range. So it's definitely something that we're thinking about, ABM. And overall, how do we keep this machine producing, but also go out and find some of those bigger deals? And so this actually is, is what we we're just talking about. At the very top of the funnel, what we've done is kind of adapt ABM, where we're not looking at specific accounts, but rather industries or verticals that we can kind of deploy some of those tactics into. Some of these are non-obvious verticals, but we've seen a cluster of customers who are incredibly successful with us and their use of the product. The logistics industry, for example, financial services. And we'll do then what, honestly, tens of thousands of other SaaS businesses have done before. We'll build a target account list of accounts within that industry. We'll create a set of messaging that's appropriate for that audience. We'll deploy those personalized paid media programs and outbound cadences. We'll show up at the random trade shows, the whole thing. It's just important that we choose what the right industries, the right use cases are, or we've already seen success. But this, you know, it doesn't come at the expense of that product-led kind of growth motion. We're still doing a number of things to keep that self-serve business productive, but we have to do both in order to really control more of our destiny on the pipeline creation at scale. So I think every, to answer your question, I think every company needs to think about ABM regardless of where they are in their maturity or if they sell big deals or small deals. The question just becomes, are you doing it at the account level or at the industry level? It's interesting, actually. I saw the other day, Mathilde posted a picture of Front's first billboard ever, which is great to see. But my question there was like, it's a very different form of marketing. Why did you decide now was the right time for that? And how do you think about people who say, oh, I would never do that because you never have any data around conversion and there's no trackability to it? I love billboard questions because it's definitely one of the most controversial things. And maybe it's this barrier bias that we have about billboards. But you know, we did it for a couple of reasons. We were coming off of the heels of our Series C announcement. And so for us, that announcement campaign drove a ton of new trials of the product. And so we wanted to kind of sustain that momentum in the weeks and months coming out of that campaign. And so we had never done a billboard as a business. I think the the company from maybe a recruiting perspective or culture perspective had an appetite for one. And what we thought is, can we see an increase in San Francisco metro traffic to the site and ultimately lead signups if we were able to kind of do this kind of out of home experience with the billboard? So we did it. And it's still early days on data. I think we're seeing that there is momentum still, which is really exciting. Your point is valid. Very hard to directly attribute that, that to the billboard. But there is something, I think, from the brand side, from the employee sentiment side, and I think a little bit in the data that we're seeing 
in terms of increased visibility in the region in which we're putting the billboard up. Yeah, no, listen, as I said, I, I love seeing it, but uh, I was interested by that. Going back to kind of the different velocity sales models, I am really interested, in, especially in terms of the relationship between sales and marketing. How does that change when you compare the time at Gainside and the time at Front Now? And what kind of that relationship and interplay looks like between sales and marketing? Yeah, I think it's just as important at Front as it is at Gainside or any other company, frankly. At Front, our sellers today, you know, they spend a lot of time engaging with trial leads that are from high potential, high intent accounts, right? And marketing, we have a role to play to enable our sales team with the right messaging, the right collateral, whatever it takes to help get those deals across the finish line. So it's similar to what a lower volume sales model would look like. You know, we signed up for a pipeline coverage number at Front to basically show that we're in this with the sales team. Our success is dependent on their success. So this idea of very tight interlock between these two organizations is just as important as more of the higher ACV, lower volume type environments. But for trials that have this, you know, no human touch whatsoever, completely self-serve, you know, we're on the hook to partner with the product and the growth teams to build an onboarding experience that can lead to value delivery and ultimately activation. So it's not just this relationship with sales that we have to work on now, but also with products, also with customer success. And, you know, that's where I think the best way to kind of debug these kind of relationships between marketing and other orgs is to have marketing sign up for some type of number to align incentives, to align accountability. And it has this way of shining a light on where in the process are there gaps today that need to be discussed and need to be improved on. I mean, I'm so pleased you said there about kind of the horizontal layer of marketing across the company and all the different functions there from sales to product to customer success. And picking up on the customer success one, I'm very much a believer that marketing really is being pushed down the funnel with so much of marketing's content now being used as a form of customer success and product engagement. Would you agree with me that it's almost kind of seeing the integration of marketing and customer success and how do you see that relationship playing out optimally? Yeah, no, it's 1000% true. The model I mentioned in the last question is one example. If your business doesn't have a concept of sales and the motion just goes from awareness to product to success, in that world, marketing has an incredible relationship dependency with the customer success team. We need to create kind of the scaled education content and the programs to drive adoption, drive expansion motions. I think some people are developing this new role called either life cycle marketing or customer success programs or for tech touch, regardless of whether that lives within marketing or within customer success, this is a point of intersection between these two groups. That's really important. It's important to have them collaborate on visualizing the, what the customer journey looks like and create all of the one-to-many content and programs that are going to move customers across their journey. But it's not just if you don't have a sales team. So an example of how marketing can support customer success in more of the traditional model is facilitating community, whether that's user groups or admin kind of communities, developing programmatic ways like advisory boards or user groups, anything that can really enable the customer success teams to have meaningful conversations with their customers. Would you not say events are almost a cool customer success strategy as well in terms of engagement? Yeah, absolutely. Nothing can replace this this in-person experience that we get when we get in front of a customer. So totally. Yeah. So I I think they ought to be tied at the hip just as much as marketing and sales. And I think we've just been so obsessed with new business as a community for so long that we're only now starting to take notice of this. Yeah. No, I listen. I, I totally agree with you. I, I do want to touch on because we mentioned the billboards there and we mentioned a couple of the different channels, one being ABM. But you know, when we look at the brand you're trying to build today, it's very much kind of in the theme of upending traditional large incumbents, your Microsofts and Googles of the world. And so with the marketing hat on, how do you think brand plays a role in upending these huge incumbents? And what do the challenger brands look like that are the best, so to speak? Yeah, you know, I have a lot of respect for companies like Microsoft and Google. Clearly, they've obviously done a lot of things right to get to where they are today. But 
these are two examples of companies that are born in a completely different era. They didn't need to compete by leading with purpose or by winning the hearts and the minds of the market. Instead, they developed like near monopolies basically in their respective categories and they ran away with the market. And now they're totally locked into this kind of go-to-market strategy of yesteryear. They lead with their what, you know, their what being their products or their how, their massive sales organizations, their entrenched channel partners. They don't lead with the why. And if, if they did, it would come across potentially more like a campaign than it would this kind of authentic expression of who they are as a brand. So I think that the best challenger brands being developed today fundamentally understand that in order to have a shot at beating the incumbents, you have to lead with why. These are brands that are purpose-driven, they're community-led, and they're investing in the success of their customers and the stakeholders that surround them. Since we know that customers ultimately buy products emotionally, even, even in B2B, building this emotive, authentic brand and enterprise SaaS can really help accelerate growth frankly, unlike any other vector that I'm aware of in the marketing stack. Can I ask, in terms of kind of building that why for the community that you serve, as we said, going back to the horizontal element of just how many different functions that Front can be applied to, for financial services, it could be the why is around secure and efficient compliance. For other industries, it could be a ton of other things in terms of collaboration and transparency. How do you think about converting the why across so many different verticals? Yeah, you know, we're working on this now, actually, this idea that higher level why, that higher level emotive positioning has to eventually connect to the product level messaging. Otherwise, it just comes across as like marketing speak. I've concluded that it's effectively the difference between brand and a product marketing exercise. Messaging has to be developed, you know, obviously collaboratively between these two groups, but in a hierarchy where everything cascades down from the highest level that has to work for everyone. The highest level has to work for everyone regardless of what industry or vertical you're in. But once you go down a layer or two, you can assign specific sets of messaging to relevant industries and relevant use cases that's it's informed by that higher level story, but it's contextually relevant for that intended audience. So I'll give you an example. In, in our case at Front, we're exploring at the highest level, the human experience with work. And that's a topic that's loaded for, for all of us, regardless of you know what role we're in or what industry. And it's a very culturally relevant conversation today, this notion of hustle culture and working extremely long hours that inevitably will lead to like burnout and decreased productivity and all these sorts of things. At our core, what we really seek is unlocking meaning in our work, whatever that means to you. And that meaning can come from, number one, being in control of your workload versus having your work overwhelming you. And second is your ability to make an impact on your business, on your teammates, and honestly, the world around us. And so that's the sort of inspirational why. But if you zoom down to the product brand and the product messaging, you know we believe that our inboxes are the window into our work. And if we've ever felt like email overload has contributed to our stress, then that's exactly what we're talking about. But for some professions, getting back to a customer quickly, I mentioned this with the right context, is really the difference between hitting the number and not hitting the number or having several tabs open to keep in check all of these various productivity apps and the notifications that are just popping up at us. And also managing our inbox is extremely overwhelming. So our challenge, how we're thinking about this is to come up with product level positioning that can appeal to those various use cases. And it's not easy, but I think if a brand can unlock it, it's a very powerful story that can pull really the masses into this movement behind what you're trying to create. Can I ask a potentially controversial one? They say, when you say a lot of what you do there, it does kind of resonate in terms of what I hear from Superhuman. How do you feel about Superhuman? Is that a competitor or is that a personal email versus a professional email? How do you think about the interplay? Yeah, you know, I think about it as the latter. I think we're trying to solve a problem that's less around the organization of your email and kind of the visual layer that sits on top of email. You know, we're really building some complex workflows on how businesses work 
that sit beneath the front end, if you will. So yeah, I think Superhuman's great from like a personal productivity perspective, but when it comes to really, you know, the complexity of work, that's really where we're pouring in a lot of our innovation. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I'm sorry for such a controversial question. No, not at all. I do want to ask you, because when you look at the people you've worked with in terms of the CEOs you've worked with, you know, you've worked with Nick Mater, you've worked with Aaron Levy, you work with now Mathilde, some incredible yeah. CEOs. And the Seattle <laughs> CEO relationship's an interesting one. How do their styles differ first? Yeah, you know, I'm the luckiest CMO in SaaS, I think, for, for this reason. Each of them are super, super different. Aaron's this sort of high-energy, product-centric type leader. Nick is an incredible people and culture-centric CEO. Mathilde is really thoughtful and cares deeply about culture and mission. And she also gets a ton of energy from working on the product. But what, you know, I believe something that actually Jason Lemkin shared in a tweet a few years ago, that the CEO is actually the real CMO. Our job as marketers is to go and bring that vision to life. And I think that's true. I think that's true regardless of the market or the product or the style. What matters most is us unlocking what's authentic to that individual CEO. So in the case of Nick, for example, you know, we were able to come up with a number of campaigns and executive comms plays that showcased his childlike joy or his you know, appreciation for music and pop culture. And we brought those elements into his personal brand that we showed the world. Uh, with Mathilde, she's got this you know, incredible following on Medium and social media around her leadership and startup culture knowledge. And she cares really deeply about the happiness of her employees and the professionals around her. That's a story that we can help tell as marketers. Because at the end of the day, the only currency that a CEO has is time. So marketing, you know, we have a role to play to really scale this authentic connection that they can make with customers out to the world. And if we can do this right, it becomes a superpower. And I think Aaron and Nick and, and Mathilde all appreciate that and, and have figured that out. Can I ask, when you look at the relationships that you've had with them, what in your mind makes the ideal CEO to CMO relationship, if one's thinking kind of optimally with the idealistic hat on? Yeah, you know, I, I think at the heart of it is trust. It has to be this foundation from which everything else can develop. And as trust is developed, I think an open line of communication for feedback, bi-directional feedback is really critical for maintaining it over time. You know, CMOs want to work for a company that has a big market opportunity, has a great product, has an inspiring team. They want to know that they're going to be given some resources to effectively tackle the opportunity ahead of the company, or maybe if not altogether resources, certainly the tailwind to go out and tell a big story. CEOs, they want to find CMOs that can be stewards of the brand and can help shepherd the company into this next chapter of growth. Not to mention someone who could be equal parts creative storyteller, quantitative demand gen expert, cultural leader. So, you know, finding the right person really isn't easy. But once you do, I think investing in the, the relationship with trust and feedback and getting obviously the success stories on the board are really key. Can I ask, you know, you're in the epicenter and you know, you have an incredible community of CMOs around you. Where do you think many find it tough in terms of the CMO to CEO relationship? First of all, there's the risk of mishire. And it's this idea that a CMO will usually feel more comfortable either in demand gen or the storytelling components of the job. I like to say with their own free time, they'll either think more in Excel or PowerPoint. And so it's important to understand which qualities are going to matter most at the leadership level and then what qualities can be hired in a lieutenant down the line. And, and sometimes getting that wrong, I think, can lead to a lot of challenges. And I think the second one is when do you bring someone on? My belief, maybe I'm biased as a marketing leader, but I think you can save a lot of time by making a marketing leader, whether it's a CMO or otherwise, a single digit hire. Because a lot of the you know positioning work, a lot of the operational work to start generating demand, Marketo or HubSpot, these types of things can really benefit from being built right the first time rather than you know, being appended and being revisited later on in the journey. So I think it's a matter of clarity on the role and the profile and then timing on when you bring that person in. See, 
I totally agree with you in terms of the timing there being single digit. Final question for the quick fire. It's like, what do you think they should look for? Because it's such an interesting kind of jack of all trades marketing position when you are a single digit first marketing yeah. hire, but also I guess the CMO in many respects too. Like, do you just want the pure analytical customer acquisition channel optimizer? Or do yeah. you want the vision storyteller to set it? How do you think about the optimal blend of art and science in that first hire? Yeah, you know, I think answering that question kind of depends on what the makeup of the executive team looks like. If you're a CEO that's more of the product-driven type person, maybe more of a bent towards the quantitative, maybe you need a creative storyteller to be on stage helping tell the story, helping to define it, in which case that might be the right profile. But you know, typically earlier days, and obviously Harry, you know this really well, even better than I do, it's about hitting the right kind of success metrics to kind of build the business and build the foundation of a growth engine. And so I think what you'll typically see are more folks looking to bring in maybe a head of marketing that has more of the demand gen expertise. Maybe it's like a stretch VP type of role, someone that's about to step into owning it for the first time. That typically is more of what I see, but I think it does depend on who else is in the room. No, listen, I totally agree with you. And uh, an incredibly tough question to answer. So I'm sorry for such a shit question. <laughs> no problem. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the best interviewers can admit when they ask a shit question. <laughs> I, I do want to dive into my favorite being the quick fire, Anthony. So I say a short statement. You know how this goes. 60 yep. seconds per answer. Ready? Yep, let's go. So what do you know now about the process, which you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time in marketing? I wish I knew that the work that we do in marketing has to translate to sales or to some type of revenue outcome. Otherwise, it doesn't actually really matter. I know that sounds super, super dark, maybe controversial, but there's actually, I think, quite a lot of freedom in that constraint. And deeply understanding that has helped my teams take this like servant leadership posture when working with sales that I think's paid dividends for us both on the relationship but also on the business outcomes. What about brand marketing? What about employee incentivization, employee confidence, like say billboards or like say a lot like it fucks me off. A lot of people think podcast advertising is brand marketing. <laughs> oh, and you can get real data, but like, yeah. do you know what I mean? What about like the softer ones, which isn't directly traceable, but it's an ecosystem play? as well. I think it's super important, but I do think like you can tie affinity type things back to some type of outcome, be it the sales teams engaged, you know, we're starting to hit the number, like the product teams building the right things. In general, our ENPS tends to be a leading indicator for our NPS overall as a business. So I think there's somewhere in the in a spreadsheet, somewhere down the line, all of those efforts do show up in some type of business outcome. Hit me, what's the biggest surprise about the move to front? You know, this is the first time that I've worked at a business that is this high velocity. We send out this thing called a daily weather report on business metrics that go out to our leadership team and our board every single day. It automatically triggers. And seeing a no-touch 50K ARR expansion come through on a Sunday is something I've never seen before in B2B. Wow. Uh, I dream of that as a VC. <laughs> Tell me, you're building a team outside of the Bay. Biggest pro and biggest con. It's the only way to stay competitive in 2020. So in front is actually the second company company now that I've brought to Phoenix, Arizona. Biggest pro, the energy, the excitement of our teammates outside the Bay Area. I think it translates to higher talent retention, higher engagement. Biggest con, honestly, it takes time to really figure out how to recruit well in these new markets. If you could change one thing about the world of SaaS today, what would it be? Honestly, that companies would choose to invest in helping their employees find real meaning in their work. I think that there's not enough being written about the emotional well-being of teammates and how that translates to productivity. Hopefully, that's something we we can help play a part of. But my hope is that together as an industry, we can start being proactive about this conversation.
conversation. Tell me, who in SaaS marketing do you think is killing it today? And why do you think so? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Joe Chernov, newly minted CMO at Pendo, by the way. And I know you sat down with Joe, but if folks get a chance to know him, uh, you'll appreciate just how how wise and thoughtful he is. I think David Gerhardt at Privy you know, continues to be this high energy young CMO that's really pushing the boundaries of B2B marketing. And uh, the third one, I've been working closely with the team at 21st Century Brand. They're a brand strategy agency that was born out of Airbnb. And this is a group of marketers that care really deeply about expressing purpose and community leadership in SaaS marketing. And that's a spirit that I think we need more of overall in our industry. I did indeed see that about Joe and that made me very happy. But listen, Anthony, as I said, uh, it's been a while since we did our last one. I was so thrilled to see the move to front. Such exciting times ahead. And thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much, Harry. This was really fun. As always, I just love chatting to Anthony and such exciting times ahead for Anthony. If you'd like to see more from him, you can find him on Twitter at acanada. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here. You can do so on Instagram at hstabbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, I want to tell you a story that I'm sure most of you are well too well aware of. You've spent the last two weeks working on that big proposal. 14 days and 44 cups of coffee later, you're finally finished. The proposal's due by the end of the day and it's seven minutes to midnight. Here's the problem. When you go to submit it, you find out that your corporate password just expired, you're locked out of your account, the IT team is fast asleep, and the clock is ticking. MoveWorks takes the suspense right out of this story. MoveWorks is an AI platform that lives on messaging tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams. You chat with their AI to unlock your account, to get access to software, to find troubleshooting answers, and more, wherever you are and whenever you need help. MoveWorks understands your request no matter how you phrase it, then autonomously resolves the issue in seconds. That proposal submitted within six minutes to spare. Check out moveworks.com to see how AI delivers instant IT support to employees anywhere and anytime. And speaking of seamless work there with MoveWorks, you have to check out Cordoba, the leading AI writing assistant built specifically for business needs in mind. These days, literally everyone within a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For SASTA listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year of their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash SASTA. And finally, we spend so much time lead sourcing, but fundamentally, the quantity of leads does not matter unless you can convert them. And one of the best ways to do that is to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where Reviews.io come in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but it is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements, and Reviews.io is packed full of useful features. But one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including Brex, Opendoor, and Carfax, to name a few. As a special offer, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code HARRY, that's H-A-R-R-Y. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.